Episode 14, Matchstick Marvels. So, in this episode, we have Patrick Acton. Patrick Acton is actually an artist. I guess we could call him a sculptor. He makes sculptures out of matchsticks. So, his website is matchsticksmarvel.com, and he's in Iowa. And he's made, among other things, full-size model, well, not so full-size, but I mean quite large enough, of Minas Tirith, Hogwarts, also uh, various uh, vehicles. I mean, his stuff is so impressive he's actually opened up a museum you have to go to the website for matchstick marvels to see the pictures of some of these models just to believe them they're very very impressive in addition to the one of minas tirith and hogwarts which are his biggest and most complicated ones there's also a full-scale model of the u.s capitol building of old ironside you name it there's so much to see there and he's used a grand total to make all of his models of 3.2 million matchsticks over the last 20 or 30 years. Because what he does is actually he takes these matchsticks and actually glues them together to make these sculptures. And when you look at it, I mean, you would think that these are, you know, you could actually use them as sets for miniature sets for movies. I mean, this, this is how unreal his material is. And obviously he hasn't bought all these matches. He's actually uh, basically takes all these matches, puts them together to make these sculptures. And they're all glued together. He's used millions of them. He's arranged things with the matchsticks companies to send it to him at one point because it was just like, you know, overwhelming. I mean, over millions and millions of matches are, have gone into these sculptures and hours of work too. Everything that he goes through to uh, make one of these models is detailed in the interview that follows here. It does need to be pointed out though that there's very little artifice involved in all of this. It's intricate, painstaking work done a little bit at a time in order to make each and every one of these models. Now, the reason why we have it on this podcast is because many of our listeners are miniatures wargamers who do like to make uh, sets and scenery, detailed scenery for uh, either wargames or for detailed RPG scenarios. And it just goes to show here how like a dedicated hobbyist who really pays attention to detail and who's truly dedicated to his craft can make amazing stuff out of the simplest substance possible. So without further ado, an interview with Patrick Acton of Match6Marvel.com. We're here on DiceCast with Patrick Acton of Matchstick Marvel's Museum. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you. So tell us a bit about your museum. Well, it's quite a, a novel type of museum. I made intricate wooden models entirely out of the old kitchen wooden matchsticks for years and years. And through the years, I've sold several of those models to Ripley's Believe It or Not and some other museums. And through the year, accumulated quite a bit. So our little community opened our own museum in the state of Iowa 
we get a, about 10,000 people a year through our little museum to see these models that are made exclusively out of kitchen matchsticks. And these 10,000 people a year, they come from all over, right? Yeah, they come from all over, and that doesn't sound like a lot of people, but we're in a very, very rural Iowa, a rural area of Iowa with, you know, no nearby interstate highways or anything like that. So it's drawn a lot of people considering we're off the beaten path, so to speak, and, um, you know, a lot of tour buses and that kind of thing, so. Uh, how long have you been uh, making models with matchsticks? Well, I started, the first model I ever made was in uh, 1977, so we're closing in on 35 years, and uh, when I when I started the hobby, my wife and I had just gotten out of college and got our first jobs, and we, we didn't have a lot of money, so I would uh, play with kitchen matchsticks just to pass the time by building little models of oh, farm buildings and houses and that kind of thing. What was your first model? <laughs> the first model was this little high steepled country church that only took about 500 matchsticks and only stood about a total of five or six inches tall. And uh, the most recent model I had stands about seven feet tall and has over half a million matchsticks in it. So, so what's that latest one a model of? The latest one that I made was actually the... Uh, city of Minas Tirith, for those that are familiar with J.R. Tolkien's works, uh, The Lord of the Rings, it's a kind of a mountainous fortress city. And I did misspeak, too. It's only got about 400,000 in it. Prior to that, I had made the Hogwarts uh, School of Witchcraft and Wizardry from the Harry Potter series. That had over, well, that actually had over 600,000. At 600,000. Yep. Which, applying a uh, the glue with a little school bottle and trying to glue 6,000 matchsticks together takes a little while. That model took three years. To okay, you said like glue with a little school model, just to make sure here, you're using white wood glue to make these. Well, originally I started with that, but I actually used similar, the, the carpenter's yellow wood glue now, but it's still all applied with a little little bottle, just like you see the, the, the white glue come in in a school bottle, yes. Why did you decide to make a, a whole museum for your models? <laughs> well, we we were trying to reclaim our house. Our house looked like a museum of some type. <laughs> no, it, actually, I didn't actually come up with that idea. I mean, I'd often thought about that would be nice. But I live in a little small community of only a thousand people, and the matchsticks got it's it's gotten a lot of notoriety in the Midwest United States. And the community was afraid that I was going to take all these really intricate models I had made and ship them off somewhere. And so they actually approached me about opening the museum and trying to keep some of the stuff here for uh, over the long run. And I'm true to my roots, I guess, and I thought it was a great opportunity. A lot of really neat things that happen in rural states like this somehow get away. So it's kind of nice to have the stuff located locally, and I'm real proud of our state, that kind of thing. So that's how it came to be. They came to me. Uh, about two years later, we had a, a new building, and we have about uh, 16 or 17 of the the real large-scale models um, place there, and it's been quite the deal. started out as a little hobby. Uh, I tell people it's a hobby gone mad. 
Now, you did mention these. I mean, these are two models that are of special interest to our listeners, Minas Tirith and Hogwarts. Please tell us about why you made them and any special stories about difficulties that you had while making them. Well, the thing with the models in the first place is I, I tell people I'm still a little boy at heart. I, I love toys and I and I love to read. I, I love architecture. And so through the years, I've made a lot of different things from sculptures to, you know, different architectural things to machine. But recently, what inspired me to do the Harry Potter model was actually somebody suggested that to me. And and that was, uh, oh, I think after her second or third book was had been released. And so I finished it about the time that the last book came out. But I just, the idea just struck me. I thought, oh, that would be a really neat idea to do. And so what happened is I found a painting kind of based on the, the very first movie version of what Hogwarts looked like. And it's called an owl's eye view. And so it's kind of a sky view of the Hogwarts buildings and ground. And so from that, I, I was able to take cardboard and make a little tiny scale model of it. And with the cardboard, make certain that the buildings look scaled the right size. And then I drew my plans from there. So in the end, that thing is it's on a, a rotating table now that's 15 feet wide. And, and it just allowed me to... to build it at a really large scale and we just had I just was bombarded with requests for pictures and talks you know about because the Harry Potter thing was such the rate well at the point I was doing that the the movies for the Lord of the Rings kind of brought the attention again to the Tolkien story of the Lord of the Rings and I had read that oh, years and years ago, I think when I was in high school, and I just loved that story. So I had thought, what could I actually build that would represent that great story? So I ended up choosing the, the city of Minas Tirith because I just thought that the castle nature and the fortress nature of that was just pretty spectacular. So that's how that came to be. So the the last couple of things, just kind of current events, you know, things that were going on that struck my fancy. And, and I said, oh, I'd really like to do that. Did you encounter any special challenges making these two? Because there are two models of two places that are really tied in with popular culture now. Right, right. The most difficult thing is they're fictional, uh, of course, and like uh, Hogwarts, based on, you know, several different castles and buildings and kind of scattered throughout England and Europe. And so the challenge on that was just trying to scale everything, because it's based very heavily on the, the movie version. In fact, the original movie version, as the movies went on, they kept adding buildings to the, the Hogwarts grounds and that kind of thing. So, But at any rate, that presented the challenge because you're building something that doesn't even exist other than with pictures, where I've done some historical things like the United States Capitol, and you can literally take the plans from from the building itself and scale them down and build the thing to scale. So that was the fun part about that. The challenging part with the Minas Tirith was the city, the different seven layers of the city are built into the mountain. And I was trying to get something to represent accurately or, or that looked somewhat realistic 
as the background, the mountain part of it was actually the most challenging. The the city itself, which consists of hundreds of little city buildings and ramps and tunnels throughout to get up from the, the bottom to the top layer of the city, it actually was relatively easy compared to trying to get something to look more mountainous-like that the building actually sits on. So each one presents its own challenges, I guess. About Hogwarts, it just occurred to me, like, is J.K. Rowling actually aware that you've made this? <laughs> well, I don't I don't know, and I, I haven't tried to do a lot of advertising to her or anybody else. I, it's not exactly as she described it. It's not exactly as the movie pictures, it, but it's, it's pretty close, and I never wanted to do a friend, John on somebody else's copyrighted material. So it's definitely got enough attention. It uh, had calls about it and requests for pictures from all over the world because of the rage of her series. So for sure it's known that it's out there, but uh, I have no other connections in any way. Tell us about some of your other models. You mentioned the U.S. Capitol. There's also a couple of aircraft carriers there, too, eh? Right. I started out, the first two things I made were the little church I was talking about. And again, from being from a rural area, and I grew up literally on a farm, and I built a, a small-scale model of a hip barn that was pretty representative of all farms in Iowa even 50 years ago, although most of them are disappearing uh, these days. But at the time I started the third model, I was reading the, the book Chesapeake by uh, James Mishner. And he got very descriptive in there about how they would build the different frigates and sloops on Chesapeake Bay at the beginning of the settlement there. And as I was reading that, and he, he gets very descriptive about how these things were built. And I said, you know, the the matchsticks would represent the right scale wood, you know, comparatively if you were building a real ship. And so I actually, the third model I ever made was a, a model of the first commissioned United States Navy ship, which is old Ironsides. And um, so that was the first thing that I had actually done that had any curves or anything like that. And from that, um, over the years, then I built a lot of different buildings and machines, trains, uh, the ships you mentioned, like the aircraft carriers. Those came a little later, but at about 10 years after I started, it would have been in the mid-80s or later 80s, my wife and I had a little girl, and I was always telling her I'd build her something out of matchsticks, and she... <laughs> She told me she wanted a pencil, and I'd tell her, well, honey, I don't think a pencil is all that challenging. So she decided I should make Pinocchio. And I said, oh, well, honey, I I can't, can't make Pinocchio. He's just got too many curves and, and shapes. There's no way. Well, she she was really persistent. And so in the end, I said, well, I'll give Pinocchio a try. Well, up to that point, if I would, had a curve, I'd cut each matchstick and several little pieces and lay those in like a bricklayer would if they were building a rounded wall. And just, But with Pinocchio, I found out that I could take a, like a needle-nose pliers, slightly crimp, and um, break the stick or a few fibers in the stick and, you know, curve that, that one stick and apply glue to it. And after it was set in place and the glue was hardened, you could never tell that, that it was broken at all. It just looked like I, you know, a lot of people said, what do you do, steam those and get them really soft and then bend them. But it, they're actually 
it's a pretty soft wood, so it some of the fibers will break, many of them will hold and kind of stretch and, and bend. So after I was successful building Pinocchio and figured out how to kind of curve and shape the sticks without the tedious task of cutting one at several pieces to, to lay them in around corners and so on, that pretty much opened the door, and then I was able to, re- you know, basically recreate any shape or, or form, you know, that was thrown at me. So for a while I got into a little sculpturing, and I, I did a dinosaur, and I did uh, Paul Revere mounted on his horse on his uh, midnight ride, and, and a gunslinging cowboy, and I did a, a bunch of different sculptures. But So it just evolved, and I learned more and more different techniques to speed the process and and get a little more creative. But I, I think overall my, my true love is still architecture, it's kind of, and that kind of shows I, I have more buildings probably you know or or some some real some fictional that that i've turned most of my attention to one thing at the museum that kind of catches people's eye is uh there was a nursery rhyme that my mother used to read to me when i was a kid about there was a crooked man who walked a crooked mile and anyway it talks about his crooked house he lived in so i have this one uh pretty large scale. It's about six feet long, about five feet high. It's this, uh, I call it the crooked house. And basically I started with one square wall and every wall um, in the entire house, including the roof, windows, whatever, all built at angles. And so the building looks like it's going to fall down every which direction. So, and that tends to be kind of a favorite of a lot of people. Okay, you know, that does sound like that would be interesting to look at. And, of course, there will be a link to the uh, museum in our show notes. You actually did answer one of my next questions here. Like, I was wondering, you, do you simply make your models by gluing them together? But uh, you said you found ways to bend the matchsticks or to section them. So you do not use any power tools at all, like a lathe to give them shape? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a great question because when I started, Literally, again, at what the, the reason I kind of took to the matchsticks, as a kid, I was always a, a woodworker, and my dad had a fairly fairly well-equipped shop, and I was allowed to use his tools as I got older. But when I started, part of the reason I was playing with matchsticks is we had no money. I had no money for materials, tools, or anything else. So with a piece of sandpaper, a bottle of glue, and a razor knife is what I had when I started. But over the years, of course, I've accumulated. I have a very complete woodworking shop now with about every kind of power tool you could possibly think of. And for different techniques, I do different things. That I still, anything with a curve or whatever, I still have to shape each stick one at a time and glue it in place. For example, Hogwarts, that has, you know, way over a half a million matchsticks in it. And a lot of curves. And, yeah, and a lot of curves, but there's also a lot of straight, you know, there's a lot of straight buildings. So I have a technique where I will build, just lay out a, a flat sheet of matchsticks. I literally glue the matchsticks on a piece of acrylic or plexiglass. And then as you set that aside two or three days and that sheet, it's just like veneer and it'll just pull right off the plexiglass. 
And then out of that sheet of sticks, I will cut patterns or make jigs and draw out shapes or basically use that sheet of matchstick, saw that up and use it for different subcomponents or for bracing on the inside of models, that kind of thing. So now I use every kind of power tool you can possibly think of, but the reality is you still have to glue every one, every matchstick and every model is glued one at a time, you know, whether you glue it up and saw a pattern out of it or not. It's still very, very time-consuming. Do your models have, especially the architectural ones, but do your models have frames? Yeah, different ones are made different ways, but a, a lot of them um, you can kind of picture well, more or less a stick frame like you would in a building, and then, then the wall or the sheeting is glued to that framework. For example, the, the old frigate, the USS Constitution, or old Ironsides, and that in, inside the hull, it is ribbed very much like a real ship would be with the bulkheads and then skinned over the outside with one layer of matchstick. So different things, different ways. What are uh, some of the reactions that people have had to the models in your museum? The most common thing I hear is, oh, you, you must have the patience of Job. <laughs> and whenever my wife's within earshot, she says, well, there's all kinds of patience. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I, I say you don't know any redheaded Irish patient people, but <laughs> but uh, the, the reactions are pretty great. I I love kind of sitting at the museum, or we we used to go to a lot of woodworking shows and art shows and that kind of thing, and it's a pretty big thrill to, because people just they really do go gaga when they figure out because a lot of people think, oh, is that carved? Is that made out of wooden boards? And then they get in luck and figure out oh my gosh, and they see the number of sticks and they start imagining how much time that would take to do. And they, then it, it just it has a whole new meaning for them. It's kind of fun. I still work professionally, and this is still a hobby, but it is a hobby gone mad. There's no doubt about it. Do you have any other hobbies? Summer hobbies. I, I do a lot of bicycling and, and that kind of thing, but that's my primary. I, I used to be a hunter and a kind of an outdoorsman and that kind of thing and I kind of put all that aside and about every three minute I have is devoted to matchstick. Please forgive me if this sounds like a silly question but we really have to ask. You've used over 3.2 million matchsticks to make your models. What have you done with over 3.2 million match heads? <laughs> For the first 10 years I would literally buy the matchsticks off the grocery shelf or off the store shelf. And that's when I was handling each stick twice. Once, I, I would have to hold it and cut the tip off with a razor knife. And then later, after I had a few hundred of the tips cut off and a few hundred sticks, I'd start building. But my wife was telling me for about the last two or three, I, I probably would have given it up if I was still cutting the heads off. But my wife was pretty persistent telling me I should contact the company and see if I could just get the, the sticks. And I would tell her, they're not going to send just plain match sticks to some wacko out in an Iowa cornfield. <laughs> but I, just, I eventually wrote a letter and it was just immediate. Within only like a week or so, I had a, a letter back from, at, at that point, it was Ohio Blue Tip Match Company. And they said, yep, here's the quantities and here's the price. So I started literally buying the sticks in bulk before the sulfur tip was ever put on the stick. So it was at that point that the models started going from 
in scale a few hundred match sticks and each bottle being a few inches tall or wide or whatever to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of sticks and the models now measuring in feet and yards instead of inches. But I never did find a very useful purpose for the match heads. I probably still have some if you'd like to send me some. <laughs> you know, I was just thinking, because 3.2 million match heads, I know you don't have that many now, but 3.2 million match heads is enough solid propellant to put the space shuttle into orbit. <laughs> Just about, just about, you know, I, back in the, those days when I was cutting the tips off, we were campers and every once in a while at, at late at night when people were staring at the fire and throw a box of, people literally save the heads in the little boxes, but they strike it on the side boxes, the matches come in, sneak one of those in the campfire when everybody's kind of tired and staring in a stupor into the fire and those would go whoosh, and the flames would shoot up about 10 feet high. That'd wake people up. That's the only useful thing I ever found. <laughs> Don't try this at home. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Do you have any other thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners? Uh, no, not really. I'm probably talking. You probably know more about matchsticks than you wanted to know now, but I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about it. So. And we appreciate you taking the time to be interviewed by us. Thank you very much, Patrick. You bet. You bet. So there you have it. Interview with Patrick Acton of Match6Marvel.com. And his museum is available for people going in Iowa. You can find out the coordinates of his museum on the uh, website. Also, we realize that for everyone who actually does these kinds of things, there's at least uh, hundreds more who actually have maybe not a website, but might actually have similar hobbies. So if any of our listeners actually do make models out of matchsticks and you were inspired by what we said and the uh, website of Patrick, just send us an email. Let us know. We'd love to hear about it and to uh, have links in our show notes with uh, your websites as well because we do realize a lot of people make models with matchsticks and uh, Patrick's stuff is truly phenomenal and uh, we'd always like to see more of that also please stay tuned for some special messages for some of our conventions that actually uh, we're promoting this month Conjurations 2011, Montreal's gaming convention. Role-playing games, board games, war games, miniatures, LARPs, and more. May 14th and May 15th at the Red Roof Church, Church of St. John the Evangelist, at 137 President Kennedy near the Place des Arts metro station. For more information, go to ggconventions.com. That's Conjurations 2011, May 14th to May 15th, ggconventions.com. That's all the time we have for this episode. You can find out more about who we are and what we do at our website, www.polymancer.com, or our main corporate website, www.polymancerstudios.com. You can email us at dicecast at polymancer.com, follow us on Twitter at polymancer, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash polymancer, or myspace.com slash polymancer. 
The music for this segment, Fort Minor, Remember the Name, BYFH Remix by Chojin, Violated Instrumental by Technetium, Industrial March Beat and Triple Layer Guitar in E by Neurowax are all released under a Creative Commons license. This episode is copyright 2011 Polymancer Studios Incorporated, released under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivative works license. This episode may be freely redistributed as long as it is done for no charge and as long as due credit is given to the copyright owners. Full text of the Creative Commons license is available at creativecommons.org. Dicecast is a trademark of Polymancer Studios Incorporated. Polymancer is a registered trademark of Polymancer Studios Incorporated. Thank you for listening to the Dicecast.